according to the, uh, the most recent poll data, 81% of Americans say that they believe in God. And as you walk around the store or maybe you, you look down the halls of your school or wherever you go, you might think to yourself, are you sure? Because it certainly doesn't look like the masses believe in God. And the reason that number is not helpful is because a very important follow-up question is not being asked. Who or what do you mean when you say God? And that's what we're, we're talking about this evening. We are in a series of talks we're calling Spark Notes. We're looking at the basics of Christian belief. And really the necessary starting point is to be crystal clear on what we believe about God. As it's been said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it shapes the way we understand the world, we understand ourselves, and and how we ought to live. Uh, And so for the next few minutes, I want to try to paint as accurate of a picture as I can of what we mean when we say the word God. And the three things I want us to see is that, that God is one, that God is creator, and that God is a conundrum, okay? So we're going to look at two different passages tonight. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 and 5 is the first one. So in verse 4, we're told to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, And this was the the religious creed of the Jews that really summarized what they believed about God. And the important thing to glean, quite obviously, is that God is one. Now, typically when we read this, we understand it to mean exclusivity, that there is only one God. That's absolutely correct. And it should be understood that way. But it's not the only way it should be understood. Uh, See, the Old Testament was written in in Hebrew, uh, and Hebrew is a rather economic language that that they would use one word that could mean several different things. And the way you figured out what that word meant was the context. And so sometimes a word will have multiple meanings in that context, and the word one has two such meanings. It can mean exclusivity, which we just mentioned, but it can also mean unity, uh, which speaks of agreement or being of one accord. And that's, that's very interesting because of how in other places the Bible talks about God. Uh, you may have heard the, the fancy term for God called the Trinity. Um, you will never find it in the Bible because it is not there. It's not a, a, a scriptural word, but it's the most helpful word we have to describe what we see in the Bible. In, in scripture, God is presented as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, a.k.a. Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and throughout the history of church, we, ha- we have struggled to faithfully articulate what this means. And so some have said that, that there's only one God, and he, like, switches hats uh, whenever he interacts with people. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people who have said, no, 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 God is, is three persons. There's three gods. Both of those are wrong. The, the, those are heresies on both sides. Uh, Micah, can you, can you put the, the picture up for me? Um, the what? No Never mind. There's no picture. I will try to, okay, so I want you to imagine a, a triangle, okay? Do it with me. Thank you, Nate. Uh, so at each point of the triangle, you have a specific person. You got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
Oh, yeah, cool. Now I don't have to try to do a visual illustration. Okay, thank you, Micah. Um, and so what this picture is trying to say is that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are distinct. The, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, etc. Together, they are God. Together, they are God. Each person, the Godhead, is distinct, and yet together, they're God. That these three are completely unified in all things, that they are one, one in unity. And so what I'm trying to say is that the, this term, that God is one, is really quite complex. That, that it means exclusivity, and yet it also means unity. And, and I will confess it hurt my brain this week, and I'm probably not doing it justice for your brains to hurt. The reason I'm trying to stress this, though, the reason it is utterly important that you understand that God is one in all of its complexity is because I think we, our view of God is too small. And how do we typically think about God? Like, like when, you, when you go to pray, what pops into your mind? My, my guess is that you have like this, this grandfatherly pig, like figure in your mind. Or, or, or maybe you don't have anything. Maybe it's just like this favorable, like misty cloud up there somewhere. What we have to understand and be amazed at is the God who is because if we don't understand that, we're going to relate to him incorrectly, especially as our creator, which is the second thing I want us to see. Uh, from the opening pages of the Bible, it, it's crystal clear that God is the one who created all things. More importantly, he's the one that created you. And being the creator carries with it um, certain expectations and implications, uh, as, as Taylor Swift has recently shown us, right? So in, in about a month, uh, Taylor is going to release 1989 Taylor's version. And, and you, can, you can think that move is, uh, to re-release all her music is dumb or a cash grab. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. We're not debating that right now. But the stated reason for her doing this, according to you Swifties, is, is that Taylor, that it's not right for Taylor Swift to not have rights to her music. That if she created it, she should own it. She should be able to decide what is done with it. Now think about what the implications are of that for us and God. God created us. God made us. That means he owns us, that he has the right as our creator to say how we ought to live and even to dictate why we're here. And this is why understanding who God is is so important. God's very nature determines why he made us. Let me explain what I mean by that. If God is how we typically imagine him, that he's this generic guy in the sky, why would he create mankind? Well, it would most likely be to fill some void right? It would be to meet some emotional or relational need. He would be like that person who goes to the shelter and adopts a dog. Sure, he loves the dog, but he really got the dog for selfish reasons, because of some unmet need. But God is not this generic God. God is one. Remember, unity, that, that, that means that, that he is in perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect relationship at all times. 
that they are constantly and perfectly loving and magnifying and serving each other. And what that means is that God is completely and utterly satisfied in himself. He needs nothing. He wants for nothing. God does not need you. God did not create you so that he could get something out of you. And if he didn't create us to get something from us, that means that he must have created us to give something to us. Uh, C.S. Lewis of Chronicles of Narnia fame described the internal relationship of the Trinity as this this divine dance that that, that no member of the Trinity is trying to show off or or usurp the other. It's one flowing, joyous, awe-expiring experience. And when God created us, he invites us into the dance to share in in, in all the love and joy and care and acceptance that he's experienced for eternity. And and that is so important. I'm going to say it again. The triune God created you to share in all the love and joy and care and acceptance that he has experienced for eternity. He wants you to join the dance. But as we'll see in much greater detail next week, we all actually refuse to take his outstretched hand and, and, and join in. Uh, in fact, we rebel against him and, and we destroy what he's created. That's the, the explanation for all the brokenness that we see around us. And, and, and it's this brokenness that requires us to, to see one final thing about God and how he relates to the brokenness, and that is that God is a conundrum. See, there, there are, are typically there are typically two popular ways of how people think God ought to react to humanity and their wickedness. There are those who think that God should be loving and merciful because why would you want to follow a God who isn't like that? But you don't want God to be simply loving because that means he ignores all of the injustice and pain and brokenness in the world. We don't want that. But we also don't want a God who is simply just, because that would mean he would just eliminate the problem. That's us. Which is why the second text, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, is such a conundrum. Now, before I read these verses, let let me make sure that we understand the context. So in Exodus 32, God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. He's giving them the law. At the exact same time, the Israelites are at the base of the mountain worshiping the golden calf, breaking all of the rules that God is giving them. And so God is rightly angry. And so in chapter 33, Moses intercedes for the people, and he asks God what he's going to do. And and in response, God reveals something about himself to Moses in these verses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. We're told that the Lord passed before Moses, and he proclaims that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is how God describes himself to Moses, that God is both absolutely loving and totally just, that he both forgives iniquity and does not let iniquity go unpunished. 
God is a conundrum. And we're going to unpack this a little bit in the next couple weeks to see how these two things can possibly coexist. But, but for tonight, I, I simply want us to be in awe of the God who is. God is not the, the generic, faceless guy chilling up there. He, he transcends us in every way, and yet he created us. He, he invites us to join in the divine dance that's, that's why in response to the declaration that God is one, we're told in Deuteronomy 6, 5, that we shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That the, the only response that makes sense when we grasp who God is, is one of love and praise. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight in small groups.